continuing a series today that we started last week. And um, we're starting a series, uh, excuse me, continuing a series we started last week. And today's primary text is going to be in the book of James. And so I want to take us in a little bit different of a direction than uh, we do on Sunday mornings. And so the reality is, is that if you hate this, we'll probably never do it again. Um, And if you love this, I think about this every week. And so you can come and talk to me every time. So we're talking about the book of James. The book of James is very, very important within the Christian worldview, and I'll tell you why. So there's this thing called apologetics. And if you've never heard of apologetics before, it's not a big deal. Most people, even with inside the church, have not heard of it. But apologetics is really the defense of an idea. And so you'll have Christian apologetics, you'll have Muslim apologetics, atheists, agnostic, humanists. Um, across the gamut of worldviews, there are apologists for them. And what they're all saying, whether they explicitly say it, or, uh, say it or not, is that their worldview is correct. Their worldview is true. And because they contradict, they all can't be true. And James is very crucial to why Christianity is true. And this is, this is the reason. Again, short tidbit, but I felt like doing it this week. So James, the author of this book, is a half-brother of Jesus. We see that in Mark 6, 3. He's listed as one of the brothers of Jesus. So they have the same earthly mother, but obviously different fathers. Then we see in John 7 that uh, him and the rest of Jesus' half-brothers are mocking Jesus. They don't believe he's the Messiah. They don't believe he's the son of God. They don't believe he's the savior of the world. And instead they're mocking him. This man that they've grown up with is now claiming to be God and they don't believe in him. And so that's a big deal. Because on the other side of the resurrection in the book of Acts, James is listed as one of the disciples waiting on the promise of the Father, waiting on the Holy Spirit with the other disciples. You continue through the book of Acts, in Acts 15, there's the Jerusalem Council. It's this very pivotal moment in the life of the early church where a huge schism could have occurred, but who's leading it? None other than the half-brother of Jesus, James. He is not just in the council, he is leading the council. Tradition goes on later to say that James the Just, as he was called, died a martyr for his faith. When they actually, his disciples got to really see his knees for the first time, they saw they looked more like camel knees than man's knees because he spent more time on his knees praying than he did walking. And so why is that a big deal? Because before the resurrection of Jesus, James is a skeptic. He's a hostile eyewitness to Christianity. He is mocking and ridiculing his brother. And then we're told in 1 Corinthians 15 that he sees the risen Jesus. And what happens? Exactly what you would expect to happen if you met the risen God. He radically turns his life around and changes. Why is that a big deal? Because just that, there is truth in Christianity. The truth is that Jesus rose from the dead. And because of that, this all worldviews claim exclusivity, whether they say it or not. Christianity is either true or it's not true. So much so that in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul goes on to say, you and I, if we call ourselves Christians, we should be pitied more than anyone else on the planet if this is false. Why? Because the gospel is costly. You have to live like a fool in this life to store treasure for yourself in the next one. And so if it is true, then thank goodness we have treasure going in the right place. But Paul says, if it's not true in this testable event, then we're to be pitied. But the truth is that the evidence for the resurrection is so strong and you will not find evidence like it in any other worldview. And so again, if you hated this, 
Never gonna happen again. <laughs> but if you love this, this is very important. If you've never been exposed to this before, I or Sam would love to talk to you about it. You can have questions, need resources, whatever it is. We'd love to point you in the right direction. So that is not what my sermon is about. But for me, I wanna be a full toolbox Christian. I don't just wanna leave my mind at the door. I wanna be someone who walks powerfully in the Holy Spirit, abides in Jesus, but at the same time, I can hold intellectual conversations about why I believe what I believe. My encouragement for all of us is to not check your mind at the door. Jesus says to love him in Matthew 22 with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind. First Peter 5 says, always have a reason prepared for the defense of the gospel. Apologetics is that reason. And so go in, it's deep. There's so much more than you could ever imagine. You can never reach the bottom. So with that, as we move into the main topic today, let me pray. Um, let me depend on the Lord right here with you guys. So, Holy Spirit, I have nothing to ask but that you would come and move in power today. We need you, God, and there's nothing that can happen of value in this room that can come from me. So Jesus, I ask you to come. I ask you to come and set captives free today. I ask you to come and just speak through me today, God, and, and pierce every heart here today with your truth. Come and speak to the pain, come and speak to the lies, come and speak to the fear and let your love just sink down so deep into every heart here, God. We want more of you and we need you more than we could ever realize. And so Holy Spirit, we say, come. Maranatha, Lord Jesus, we say, come. And so it's in your name that we pray, amen. So you may remember we spent the first part of this year talking about kingdom the kingdom of God versus the culture of this world and juxtaposing just how different they are. We started a series last week that's really about, okay, the Sermon on the Mount comes right after Jesus announces the kingdom of God is at hand. In Matthew 4, 17, he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And right on the heels of this in Matthew 5 through 7, he goes on to describe what the kingdom of God is like. James, his half-brother, sees the Sermon on the Mount and says, that's what the kingdom of God is like. This is how you live it out. The book of James is filled with imperative commands. There are 60 commands in the five short chapters of this book. He is a doer. I like this kind of guy. A practical application of this, as many of you were here when we got to dedicate, help dedicate Stephanie's family to the Lord, who's a widow in our congregation. James would say we would be hearers of the word only if we came up here and said, Stephanie, go and be in peace. We pray that the Lord provides for you. We pray blessing upon you. But James would say, you're hearers of the word if you don't go behind that and say, how can we help you? How can we support you? How can we invest in your family and take some of the burden off you? That is the emphasis of James. It is an action-packed book. It is all about doing and so with that, today we're gonna to be marrying this passage from James to Sermon on the Mount passage. And first I wanna work through James. It'll be our primary text today. And then we'll tie it in with Matthew and see how this culminates together. See how these two passages interlock together. So James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So what I want you to recognize from this passage is that you have options. 
When trials come, you have options. Option one, you, when trials come, you can count what the trials are as something. You can be annoyed by the trials. You can be distressed by the trials. You can be depressed. You can be angry. You can be temperamental. You can be a, you can be a brat. You can do all kinds of things when the trials come. You can also count it as all joy. And then what's, what's so fascinating to me in this is the idea of letting steadfastness have its full effect. When trials come, you have the option to lean into God, be indifferent to what's going on or to reject God. And the, the, the struggle here is that it would be so nice if trials just came and automatically just by being in a trial, you looked more like Jesus. It would be so nice. <laughs> that's not the way that sanctification works. Looking more like Jesus is not a one-man show, it's more of a dance where you go along with Jesus and you follow his lead and you go where he goes and in the process of that, of being close to him, you look more like him. So we have options. We cannot count it as all joy and we cannot let steadfastness have its full effect. And so within those options, I wanna break those down for us today and kind of look at the fruit of what happens when we, we either choose to lean in we choose to lean out. So the first thing that we can do is, is kind of get this wrong. So we can, get, we can get trials wrong, absolutely. First way we can do this is by cursing. And no, not that kind of cursing. I'm talking about the Job kind of cursing. So if you'll remember the story of Job, Job is this holy, blameless man in the Old Testament. He's extremely wealthy. He has a beautiful family. And just like that, Satan, the adversary, takes it all away in the blink of an eye. His kids die. Uh, All of his his wealth is just evaporated just like that. And then right after this, Satan comes back and goes after his health, but spares his life. Job's wife says, what are you doing? Just curse God and die. Why are you still remaining faithful to him? And so this place of cursing God is, is more characterized by this just hate, this anger, this frustration about the trial you are in. You are not letting steadfastness have its full effect. If anything, you are just like, you are so over God. Now, let me say this. If you've ever had like a real, real trial come up in life, there's probably at least some part of you, if you're honest, that when it's come, you have had some not so nice things to say to God. You have been like, what are you doing? I could do this better than you. Do you need a reminder? Do you need tips? Like, what is it? Beautiful thing about God is I think God can handle us at our ugliest. I think God can handle us at our worst. We get ourselves into trouble, however, when we make this more than a pit stop. If you have gone through a trial and you are continuously finding yourself hateful towards others, hateful towards God, angry with him, frustrated at the state of your life, that's a pit stop. You're not meant to stay there. You're meant to make a human trip there real quick and then hopefully have community come around you, have the Holy Spirit, listen to the Holy Spirit in your life and get out of there. You will get yourself into trouble if you decide to stay in this place for too long. The next place where we can really get this wrong is, is honestly very rampant in the church. And it's so, so easy. The temptations are everywhere. 
We get ourselves into trouble. We do this wrong when we cope apart from God for long periods of time. Fortunately, the diagnosis for this is pretty easy. I will let you diagnose yourself and not your spouse. Misplaced priorities. Is knowing God and him knowing you the most important priority in your life? You might have moments, you might have days where that's not the case. But again, when we start coping apart from God for long periods of time, we get ourselves into trouble. And the surest way that you can check yourself and do a diagnostic check is, where am I at in my relationship with God? Have I made a pit stop coping apart from God or is this my way of life? And you know how it all is. There are plenty of addictions in the world, several of them that the church speaks out against. Obviously, drugs are horrible and they're awful. Alcoholism is horrible and it is awful. Pornography is horrible and it is awful. And we speak out against those kind of addictions. But at the same time, many of us are addicted to things that are just socially acceptable. And as Christians, we are not called to be the infants after we have been walking with the Lord for long periods of time. We are called hopefully to be immature as many areas as possible in our life. And addictions and coping apart from God hinders that process. So if you are addicted today to your child's happiness and putting that before the Lord, if you are addicted to their extracurriculars and sports activities before the Lord, their academics before the Lord, your work schedule, your retirement account, your video games, teenagers, yes, I'm talking to you, social media, your phone, technology, whatever the case is, it's not a judgment thing on my part. It's a saying you're missing out. The king of glory is in pursuit of you. And when you cope from apart, apart from him, you're not letting the love of God into your life and you're settling. And there are places where, again, this is, there's so much grace here, but the grace is so that this can be a pit stop and then we can pull ourselves out of that with the help of others and the help of the Holy Spirit so that that is just a pit stop. We miss out on looking more like Jesus when we insist on staying here. And it, if we're, really, if we're really honest, I feel like I say that often because we're usually not in church, unfortunately. Um, a lot of us stay here because we, don't have, we, don't, we are so far apart from community that we get to hide in our habits. The only people that see how we're really living our lives are the people that we live with. And we don't let other people into our mess because one, we love the lies that we tell ourselves. You really, really need to be in godly community for your own benefit. One of the things that sticks out to me the most, quick side note, Ephesians 6 is that famous warfare passage where we see the armor of God. At the time, this is like the mightiest, uh, this is the, the best military advancement had come. And it's the soldier like really decked out from head to toe. But if you study the Roman armor that is described there, it was never meant to be a one-off. The Roman armor had power when it was surrounded by others. We get ourselves into trouble when we isolate. When we isolate, we get to live here way too long. Because godly community says, hey, man, I noticed that this is going on and I love you. And I noticed that this is going on and can we just pray right now that we would invite God into this and we would start a healing process and start, stop believing the lies that are about us and about our circumstances. When that happens, this stops from a permanent location to a brief vacation. And that is God's heart. 
And there is grace there, wherever you're at in the trials that you are facing, this is not a knock you over the head. This is saying there is grace, but the grace is there so that you can leave. And so if we can do it wrong, I think there's another place that we can really be amidst a trial. And I, I really think this is a very, very human place. Um, and the beautiful thing about it is I think God's grace meets us here. And it's in the wrestle. The wrestle is not so much with God as it is with the trial. The wrestle is with the trial. If, again, if you've ever been through anything where you feel stretched so thin that you don't know how you're gonna, like there's just anxiety everywhere, everywhere you look at, everything could go wrong, you're gonna get overwhelmed. As humans, that happens to us. Amen. As humans, that happens. And the beautiful thing about this is how gracious is God towards our humanity. He does not expect perfection, which thank goodness, because I would fail that every minute of every day. One of the stories that sticks out to me the most about God's grace in the wrestle with the trial is the story of Elijah after Mount Carmel. If you'll remember in 1 Kings 18, Elijah literally calls down fire from heaven and it consumes a soaking wet altar. Right after this, the prophets of Baal are defeated by the hand of Elijah and those around him. This is a spiritual high. I don't know the mountaintop that you have been on with the Lord, but if you have called down fire from heaven for anything, you are up here. I would love to talk to you and know what that's like. It's on my to-do list. He is all the way up here. In the next chapter, Elijah becomes afraid of one woman and asks God to kill him. He is absolutely overwhelmed by his circumstances. He is overwhelmed by the trial that he is in. How human. If you've ever had a true spiritual mountaintop moment, it's funny how quickly it can fleet. It can just go away. And it's so frustrating how quickly it can, but it can, and that's part of our humanity. What is so fascinating about this and this wrestle with the trial, we're talking about Elijah, in the New Testament, he is the prophetic representation of the Old Testament. When Jesus comes to the Mount of Transfiguration, who is there? It is Moses representing the law and it is Elijah representing the prophets. In 2 Kings 2, we don't see that God abandons Elijah and says, dude, you are the prophet of Israel. What are you doing? You're supposed to be better than this. What we see is that Elijah never dies. He's taken into heaven by a chariot of fire. This man who missed it so badly is covered in grace so deeply that God honors him in this really unique, really beautiful way. That is grace for the wrestle. God is not expecting you to nail it every single moment of every single day. What God is asking is for you to respond to his grace so that you have this general uptick of looking more like Jesus. Again, general uptick. There are going to be times where your sanctification takes a step back. There are going to be times where you are stagnant and you are not growing in the Lord. But what he is asking for is not your perfect line that has no flaws in it. He is just asking, come and see. Come and see that the Lord is good. I don't know, but I need that today. <laughs> that
That's the God that I wanna follow. And it is a God that is totally unique to Christianity. Every other, every other worldview in the world while we're talking apologetics, ask for perfection. It says your salvation is up to you to earn. Every other one. Christianity is the only one that says you can't. You could never earn it. That's good news. All right. And so with that, I wanna start marrying our James passage. If you'll remember, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And I wanna marry that to our passage in Matthew today from the Sermon on the Mount, this description. Here's what I want. If we could go back one slide, that would help. Um, Here's what I want first. The section we're looking at in Matthew today is called the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are summarized by blessed are those. And when you just read it on a surface level and you don't kind of dig into it, it just seems like a random hodgepodge of, of different ideas. And in a way it certainly is, but when you actually get down to what Jesus is talking about here and you start sifting through, what is he like, what is left? If I go through all of these ideas and statements, what is left at the end of the Beatitudes? What is left is someone who is deeply dependent on God. And I'm not talking like, you know, like a little like we, we talk to God once a week about like, hey, it would, it would really help if you, if you took care of that. I'm talking, Jesus is describing someone in the Beatitudes, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount of someone who is entrenched in the love of God. They trust God deeply. This is who he is referring to. This is if you take all these ideas, that is what's left radical dependence on the Lord. It is not up to you. It is not up to you to decide who you, uh, who to exact just vengeance and justice on. You'll be merciful because you know the Lord is just. It's not up to you to be harsh for people because you wanna look like God and you want his character be, to be inside you. That's the idea here. Deep dependence, deep abiding, deep trust. And so as we move into our Matthew passage, that is who we are talking about. In Matthew 5, 10 through 12, Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. This is our true um, marriage of James, our James passage. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets before you. Sam and I were talking before this and um, he said, well, what, is, what does that look like for us? Like as Americans today, what does it look like to be persecuted? It's a good question. I'll tell you the story for what it looks like. Um, Alyssa and I both used to work at a university, fairly close to here. Let's connect the dots. And... Um, while we were there, we met a young lady who was just, I mean, this was her. Deep dependence on God, abiding. Like this is someone you were like, this girl knows Jesus in a very unique and very special way. And so we're working there. She's going through school there. We're a little bit older and she actually confides that, hey, I have a professor who is downright persecuting me in class. 
She is a loud and adamant atheist and ridicules me every single class for what does the Christian think? Every single class, she is targeted and belittled in class simply for being a Christian. This is the kind of persecution that is real for us today. Persecution, not so much in that, you know, if we're honest, the outside world hates Christians today. It really does. And it's so silly because it claims to be loving, which there's a whole soapbox and I'm not getting on that today. But she was persecuted because the light in her shined so brightly. She was not persecuted for being a lukewarm Christian because no one persecutes a lukewarm Christian because nothing about them bothers them. Truth is offensive. Again, this, remember earlier, we like to cope because we have made our truth. We have started to believe the lies. You'll remember Jesus said the world is going to hate you. Why? Because same thing, we're calling out the evil in the world and just saying that is evil. That is what it looks like to be persecuted for righteousness sake. I think, come on, let's do it. I think a lot of the stuff that us Christians get mad about, the early church that was burned alive, fed to lions in the Colosseum, they would look at and say, are you kidding? Like you're mad about that? My best friend got ripped to pieces last week right in front of me. Y'all, sometimes the church just needs to put on their big boy pants and go to work. We gotta, I mean, come on, all right, I'll do it. We have to stop getting offended about every little thing and being surprised when the lost act lost. The American church is, no, come on. If you, tr truthfully, Tertullian says, uh, the blood of martyrs is the seed of Christianity. Christianity is spread on the blood of martyrs. I don't know too many martyrs that died lukewarm. And I know that Christianity in so many ways spreads when we suffer. Persecution comes when we live radical, radical obedience and dependence on God. In so many ways, the persecution that this is talking about is not the persecution that we see in the West. I would really encourage, uh, I would really encourage you if you never have before, study church history. That is real persecution. What we, what we see in the West, maybe a little, but not like, not like what I think Jesus is talking about here. All right, off the soapbox. Okay. So, between James 1 and Matthew 5, there is a beautiful demonstration of what this looks like. Trials are real. No one is downplaying trials. I don't know everything you've been through. You don't know everything I've been through. Some of the things that have happened to people in this room are abysmal, terrible. I wish I could change all the pain in here. I don't, I can't. I don't have that power. But there is someone in the Bible who really lived this out incredibly well. I wanna do, do a quick study into the life of David. 
So David's life is recorded through First and Second Samuel. And I want, I want to get us through First Samuel and I need to give you context because it's really important what happens. So First Samuel starts and the nation of Israel is moving out of the time of Judges. Judges are ruling Israel and it's a loose confederacy. It's not a united monarchy. But Israel looks around at everyone around them and says, we want a king just like everybody else. And God is like, well, that's ironic because you actually have a perfect king. But if you want a king, I'll give it to you. And so Saul is anointed as the first king of Israel. At first it goes great. And then very quickly, Saul starts doing what is right in his own eyes and starts abandoning the Lord. He has the kingdom taken away from him, but he's still on the throne. And amidst all of this, David is anointed as the next king of Israel. David is so different from Saul. David is the only man in the Bible described as a man after God's own heart. He is the Beatitudes. He has a deep, deep dependence on God. As David is getting ready to go fight Goliath, who Saul should have been fighting, David reminds everyone, hey, when I killed the lion, when I killed the bear, it was because the Lord delivered them into my hands, not because of me. When David goes to fight someone who's two times his size, he says, it's not me that's gonna kill you. The Lord is gonna deliver you to me today. He has a track record of depending on God. And unfortunately, Saul gets so lost in his madness, so lost in his insecurity, he takes this boy who has done nothing but serve him in the nation of Israel well and tries to kill him. He starts throwing spears at him. He starts concocting plans behind his back. And ultimately, David has to run all over Israel trying to escape Saul. It kind of culminates in this insane story where David has been run into a cave with his men. They're hiding in the deep recesses of a cave. And lo and behold, who do you know comes around? Saul. All by himself, he comes into the cave to actually go to the bathroom. And all of David and all of his boys see it. And they're like, David, this is it. He's by himself. Take it into your own hands and end this. This has been so ridiculous. You don't deserve this. Just kill him. The Lord has delivered him to you today. And David is like, what are you talking about? The Lord made me king, not my self-effort. When my time to ascend to the throne comes, it will be through the Lord's working, not my own. And in this insane act, he spares the life of Saul. That is the dependence of the beatitude. That is counting it all joy when you go through trials because the battle is not yours. When he is persecuted simply for being a righteous man, that is what it looks like in form. So 1 Samuel 24 is the historical account of what happens. Hadn't hungry. 1 Samuel 24 is the historical account of what happens. The poetic form of what happens is Psalm 57. I want you to pay attention to the wording here. Be merciful to me, O oh God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. Till the storms of destruction pass by, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. 
God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. That is dependence. That is what the Beatitudes are getting at. That is what Matthew 5 is getting at. Deep dependence on God, recognizing it's not up to you to get out of the trial. God will deliver you from the trial. Check this out. This is the real side of what David is going through in verse four. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down in fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp words. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. David here does not downplay the trial. He says, this is bad. Lions surround my soul. They have tried to trap me everywhere that they can. And this is so real for me. They are, they are vicious towards me. They are enemies towards me. Why? Because he is being persecuted for righteousness sake. Look how he ends this Psalm. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be all over the earth. In the literal center of this chapter in verse five, the focal point of the chapter, he says, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. So if we can get trials wrong, we can wrestle through trials or we can choose to worship through trials. That is how you count it all joy when you go through trials. You, like David, recognize the trials are real. The persecution is real. But like David has in the middle of his psalm, 